The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying um, partway through it. One guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast, www.newzealandersatwar.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I talk with Doug Smith, DFC. Doug is a veteran from World War II who flew all sorts of interesting types, including the Douglas Boston, the Vickers Wellington, and the Avro Lancaster. 
Now I am Douglas Stanley Pesh, P-E-C-H-E, Smith. Smith is my surname. I was born in London in 1918. Right. My father was a New Zealand soldier on the Western Front. Okay. And um, he met my mother in London and I was the result. So I was born 11-3-18. We came out to New Zealand in 1920, somewhere around about there. And uh, my father was a a man from Dargaville. He was in the post office. And he um, had about uh, six or seven maiden aunts, uh, or his maiden, his sisters really, but my maiden aunts. And they all lived in Dargaville, and of course he took my mother up there. My mother was Swiss. She was a Swiss governess. Anyway, he, uh, of course, mother looked at Dargaville. I mean, even looking at Dargaville today, you wouldn't say it was a a marvellous place to uh, come out to New Zealand then. And she took one look at it and said, come on, back to England. So we went back to England. But of course, there were three and a half million people out of work in England and my father couldn't get a job so he had to borrow the money to come back to New Zealand. <laughs> so that's how we finished up here. Uh, I went to school in Devonport, we lived in Devonport, Vauxhall School and from there my father was posted in depression days down to Thames, he was in the post office. So I went to Thames High School. I graduated there it was uh, matriculation or university entrance, as it's called today. And uh, I started work in the post office. I couldn't get a job anywhere else, so I was a message boy. And however, I was uh, a young cadet and I posted to Auckland West Post Office when the war started. So, by which time my father was Deputy Chief Postmaster Auckland. He'd, yeah, he'd uh, got a lot of promotion. He was quite a clever guy, my old man. Anyway, so came the old war and the old business of the Battle of Britain, and of course, I wanted to be there. So I joined up, and of course, we couldn't get in straight away. We had to uh, wait, and, and it was January 1941. We got the call up to go to Levin. So we went to Levin and did all the old, you know, nonsense, picking up cigarette butts and stuff on the parade ground, and just sort of getting most of us into shape. And uh, then we were posted to, uh, I went to uh, New Plymouth for my initial training on Tiger Moth. Um, I got into a bit of trouble there. I'm, I'm a man that, got, that gets into trouble. I, I don't think really what to, what happens and uh, the result is that um, I was flying, not the Tiger that time, I was flying a Gypsy Moth because they had one or two aircraft from the Aero Club, you see, and there was a big notice across the front of the airplane saying, do not aerobat this airplane. And they didn't say why, you see, so of course I had about 10 hours total flying and I got up and I thought, oh, I'll do a slow roll. And I went, woof, like this and turned it upside down. And of course, a great stream of bloody oil came out of the engine. 
all over the aircraft and all over me and it was hot too and uh, there it was and I took it back and landed it and I passed the chief instructor's office and he looked out the window and I could see he went red in the face he came storming out of there and, and I stopped the airplane and he said to me can't you read can't you read what does it say on that notice? And I said, it says, do not hear about this airplane. Look at your airplane. He said, take it into the hangar, clean it down. You clean it down and clean yourself down too. <laughs> so that was a bit of a trouble for me. But anyway, I got over all that, Got uh, did my first solos and everything. I found it easy to fly. Was that your first flight when you got into the Air Force? Yeah, so first solo there. Did about 50 hours there, I suppose, and then we were posted to... I was posted to a Harker, and I knew very straight away that I wasn't going to be the fighter pilot. Anyway, so we went to Harker, and I think I got into... Oh, I got into more trouble there, because the old Oxford had one of the first of the radios in the country, because, you know, we didn't have much in the way of equipment in those days. And it was sitting on the back on a, on a pedestal and he got a, he's got an aircraft down the back of the aircraft. And there again, I said to, uh, I said to my friend, we flew in pairs there, I said, hey, let's have a, let's, let's see if we can loop this thing. <laughs> we were crazy in those days. And I got halfway up in the loop and there was a great crash down the back of the airplane and the, and the radio fell off the, the mountings, you see. And of course it got wrecked. And then there again, I'm up before the bosses. And I passed out of a here with the notification that I was barely a satisfactory NCO and required careful watching. <laughs> <laughs> but how did, it, how did it loop? Was it, was it all right in the loop? Or did, did it loop okay? Or? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course, we didn't know how to do it. We'd never been taught aerobatics or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. So, anyway, came the end of the course at the Hark here. This is quite simple. This is quite important to me. And I, I had a Norton motorbike in those days, and it was down to Hark here. And we went to the course party, and about 10 o'clock at night, I left Hark here for Auckland on this bike. And you go in those days, State Highway 1 was all metal. And I got as far as Huntley actually, and a bit Huntley bit from Hamilton to Auckland was sealed. And there were white dots in the middle of the road, and it was four o'clock in the morning. And I was still on a bloody bike. I managed to get some petrol at Tiguiti, I think, otherwise I would have been out of fuel, you see. But anyway, and I'm doing about, I reckon I was probably doing about 70 or 80 miles an hour, miles an hour on this thing. And I went to sleep on it. And, you know, I remember seeing these dots coming freshly flashing past like that. And, uh, and I went off the road, and the road went round the corner, but the railway was right there, right alongside the road, and I got into the crossing. The, you know how the crossing has sort of boards in it like that? And the bike went into that, and it stopped dead. And... Uh, I know the speedo was mounted on the handlebars there and on that bike and that speedo hit me straight in the bloody face and smashed my face in. I had a fractured skull, broken nose and all the rest of it. I don't know how the hell I wasn't killed. 
But I managed to stagger out on the road and there I am standing in the middle of the road covered in blood and a Shamrocker happened to come to work there and of course he picked me up and took me to Hamilton Hospital where I spent the next five weeks in the hospital while they patched me up. And of course my mother was shocked about my accident but she said to my father afterwards, she said, well, he won't have to go to the war now. So she was secretly pleased. But he, she said to my father, break that bike up. The old, my father, the old man chopped it up with an axe. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't ride the bike anymore. So that meant that I, I didn't go to 75 Squadron where the rest of the course that I was on all went to 75. And you know, there are only two survivors to that. Those poor blokes had to fly Wellington aircraft. And the, the fellow that I flew in had uh, a hacker with. He, um, <coughs> he was killed over um, Hamburg. You know, he was 21, you know. And so I, that was lucky for me. So by the time I got to England, I didn't know. I went down to Bournemouth where they all put us all down there while they, uh, you know, sorted you out. And I got a, I got a uh, note to go to Upward, which was an OTU flying Blenheim, so I flew the Blenheim. So uh, uh, I was posted to a squadron, an 88 squadron. They were in Norfolk there, and we had these Blenheims there, and I thought, gosh, this is a terrible bloody airplane to go to war, because it was all daylight stuff. You know, you were shipping, shipping strikes and all that sort of thing, it was pretty deadly. Anyway, luckily there was a note came that we all had to go up to Liverpool to collect a bunch of Bostons. Now the Boston was an aircraft built by Douglas, it was a 30s design. It had a couple of massive great 18 horsepower, uh, 1800 horsepower, bright cyclones in it, and it wasn't a very big airplane, it wasn't much bigger than the fighter really. Only <coughs> about that wide. The navigator sat in front, you sat in the middle, and the gunner, wireless operator, sat behind you. And so we used mostly to go over from France and, and drop bombs on anything that happened there, like power stations and things like that. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was all low level stuff. I love low, low flying. Anyway, I did a few trips there. I, did, I probably did eight operations there because we didn't do much really. They had very short range, and they didn't carry much in the way of bombs, and, had a, and really they weren't much good to us, but they were an aircraft, and of course they had to use everything. Because Britain in those days really fighting for its life. Anyway, <coughs> I came back from a low-level cross-country one day, and I was stationed at a place called Swanton Morley. And I beat up the officer's mess there because I, I got a commission before that and I don't know how I got a commission, but still I, I think I was a good formation pilot. And, I, and the, the CO liked me to fly number two to him. Anyway, um, I got a commission. And there I came over the officer's mess at about naught feet, making a hell of a noise, doing about 320 miles an hour. <laughs> and on the other side was Viscount Trenchard, who was the real boss of the Air Force, you know, having a cup of tea. 
Well, of course, he gave it a shake and spilt the tea on his number one blue. <laughs> and he wasn't amused. He said, you know what to do with that young fool. You'll send him up to, up to Sheffield. Now, Sheffield was a, a glasshouse place where you rushed around with bloody packs on your back. You know, it didn't matter whether you were an officer or not. You really had to do this study nonsense. And, it, and they were going to do that to me, you see. And I, I said to the CEO, who was a hell of a nice guy, he said, I can't do anything for you, Doug. He said, I can't do anything for you. You'll have to go. I said, my New Zealand flash, sir, you can't do that to me. You know, I'm not Royal Air Force. I'm Royal New Zealand Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he said, is that so? I didn't know that. I didn't, and it probably wasn't right, but anyway. <laughs> so he said, oh, well. You'll have to go to fly the Happy Bombers. I said, oh, well, I'll have to do that. So they sent me to an F OTU and um, where I picked up a crew. So I had to go to, um, I went to Cottesmore. Now I got in this bloody Wellington and I thought, what a bloody awful aircraft I have to fly on the Boston, you see. And uh, I had this Canadian rear gunner. That's where he joined. And I got, uh, no, and I got, what else have we got? Something else. Oh, we had to get us. No, we uh, we already had the, my navigator and Wallace I've had to come with me, you see. So we had two of them there. We got two gunners. We got up a gunner and the rear gunner. That's all we had. And he had to, no, we got the, um, we got the flight engineer at the con unit. But anyway, I said, to, uh, my first solo on the Wellington, it was a grass field, Cottesmore. I said, you can taxi anywhere on this field. He said, yes, you can. All right, okay. He said, go and do a couple of, you know, take off some landing. He said, leave your crew behind. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to say to the gunner, get out. <laughs> they all got out. So I did a couple of uh, circus and landings and all that sort of nonsense, and I came back. And I thought, I can taxi right across this field, you see, so I taxied across. And I couldn't see really anything much on the right-hand side of the aircraft. I'm sitting on the left. And all of a sudden, the body aircraft stopped dead, just like that. And it leaned over like this, and I thought, what the hell's going wrong, you see? So I'm in the process of getting out when the Hillman car comes up and the CO comes roaring out, and he's red-faced as well. What are you doing, you stupid Kiwi? <laughs> no, not Kiwi, they didn't use that firm. Kept with colonial bastard, he said to me. Look what you've done. And I looked at the, got outside and had a look, and there was the main wheel on the right-hand side in a, in a big gun pit. They, they had one of these machine gun pits in the middle of the field. Now, that bloke never told me that was there. But they don't listen. Taxi accident. You've broken an airplane. They don't listen. They were going to court-martial me. I said, I'll take the court-martial. No, and then the end they decided, well, they'd give me a good old dressing down. They put a red piece of my logbook, which you can have a look at. There was nothing much in it, really. And there I started off again on the wrong foot. So we go to the con unit, conversion unit, heavy conversion to HCU at Wigsley. We did all. We only we only got about three or four trips in the Lancaster. I had barely 20 hours flying the Lancaster. 
We did the last trip and they loaded it all up with bombs like it would do for a raid. And uh, we went away for a night for five hours, five hours at night and we came back and it was terrible weather. And we came on to short final on the runway there and all of a sudden the engineer who we'd gathered it, there, he was 18 years of age, this kid, just straight out of school really, you know. And he shouts out, the starboard engine's on fire. And I look out and there it was on fire. I said, well, put the bloody thing out, you see. <laughs> and then all of that, and I said, <coughs> and I swung off the runway, so I had to overshoot. So I opened the throttles, and I said, you'll have to, you'll have to do all the fire drill. You, you do it. I said, I've got to fly this bloody airplane. Well, of course, it was all loaded up and had the flaps out, the wheels down, and we started to go, and the first lot of trees we came to, we went through the tops of them. And we very nearly had our bloody time there. There's a thing in air, in air parliaments called VMC, and that's the minimum control speed, because there's not enough air flying over the rudders to keep it straight, and it starts to go like this, and it curves around like that. And you can't get much lower, because you're lower as it is. But we managed to get the wheels up and get the flaps up and we got away with that. That was the nearest thing we ever had. And I got a green endorsement for that. Yeah, so that, uh, I thought I was a pretty good sort of pilot. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we got posted to, um, to where was I now? Spilsby. Spilsby was a, a new airfield in Lincolnshire, full of mud, three runways, a terrible place really, but that was the squadron I was on, 207 squadron. And uh, I did the rest of my time there. We started off on Berlin, and uh, I went to Berlin initially as a co-pilot for, for some fellow who was more experienced than I was. They gave you one trip, and then I took off my own with my crew. And on my second trip, Berlin, over Berlin, we had a fight with the JU-88 and we shot the JU-88 down. <laughs> At least the gunners shot him down. <laughs> so that was pretty good going. But, um, you know, really, at that time, at the end of 43, the beginning of 44, we had some horrible less losses. Nuremberg, we lost a hundred aircraft that night. A hundred aircraft. You know, that was terrible. There were bloody airplanes going down all over the place. I did, I think we did, I should say, we did at least six trips as supporters for the Pathfinders. In other words, we went through the target with the marking aircraft to give them support, you know, that would, that would make a hundred aircraft going through the target and you had to go around and, and come and bomb into the third into the third wave again. It meant you went through the target twice. <laughs> so we did about six of those, but we finally finished up, and of course we did 30 trips. And um, that meant that... Um, that... Um, Oh, I don't know. Oh, of course, I got the survivors. Survivors gone, I call it, the DFC. And the rear gunner got the DFC. And um, 
the bomb haven't got the DSC, DFM. Anyway, the gunner went on. He had to do, he'd only done 28 from 30, 22 trips. He'd had to do the other eight trips, you see. The rest of the crew did, the two gunners and the um, and the bomber all had to do the trips. And the gunners went to, with the squadron, the squadron CO, you know, the, the and he was, he was a pretty clued up guy. And at uh, one raid, which they were doing over France, they shot down three aircraft, three aircraft in one raid, the two of them. So they they were called up by Butch Harris, the old man, to have lunch with the old man. And he said, what are you guys? Look at you, three aircraft. And my gunner finished up with seven, seven aircraft shot down. So he got a bar to his DFC. <laughs> That's extraordinary. <laughs> so there we are. And I don't know what I got. Oh, I got, I'm above average pilot. All those airplanes I got above very average for. So I suppose I was a reasonable pilot. Anyway, I didn't do any more. I was posted away as an instructor to uh, a New Zealand OTU at, um, where the hell was that? Just outside uh, Aylesbury. Oh, I should know that. That was 11 OTU. It was a, quite a famous OTU, that. And I was an instructor there till the end of the war. In the meantime, I had got involved with a, an English lady. And um, it's a story that, well, I'm not going to tell. But anyway, we finished up getting married some time later. But in the meantime, we had a couple of kids. <laughs> and I, and really, I wasn't a ladies' man or anything. I'd, I'd never even had a girlfriend. I was an only child. You know, my father said to me when I went to the war, you know all about women, boy, he says. <laughs> oh, yes, Dad, I know all about them. I knew nothing about them. <laughs> anyway... I went down to, um, when the war finished, I went down to headquarters in London and asked to uh, to stay on in the RAF. And I met uh, Air Commodore Gill down there, and, there, and of course, Air Commodore Gill being a staunch Catholic and all that sort of nonsense, he was shocked to hear about all this, one of his officers, and uh, he said to me, I'm not going to help you at all, you're on the boat going home. I said, no, I'm not on the boat going home. You'll be a deserter if you don't go on the boat, he said. And think what that means. Think about your family and all that sort of thing. I said, I am not going home. My wife is pregnant again, and I'm not going home. I'll join the RF. Well, he said, you better make sure you do, he said, because you're on the boat. Anyway, I, I went down the corridor and there was a, a nice squadron leader I happened to know, and, he, and I said, can you do it? I told him my story. Can you do anything for me? He said, Doug, how much foraging time have you got? And I said, oh, I've probably got about 500 hours. He said, would you fly to York? I said, well, I'll fly anything. But he said, all right, and I said, if I can get you on transport command, and he did, and got me on transport command. So I flew Yorks all around the world. It was a great experience for me. And I came back 
well, I bought my family back, everything. And everything in uh, 1947, beginning of 47. And I came back here and joined the post office again, where I had left as a young cadet, you see, getting 25 bob a week. <laughs> and now I've got a wife and <laughs> three children. <laughs> oh dear. We had no house, no nothing. Goodness me, it was dreadful. But anyway, we survived that. And I said to myself, what the heck am I going back to this post office job for? And I can't, no, I can't take that. And National Airways was just starting up, you see. So I went down to see Mr. Durand, who was the officer down at Palmerston North. And uh, I went down, I was sitting outside his office in Palmerston. Durand was an Australian. He was an ignorant so-and-so, but he was a wing commander, you know, and uh, and he was the operations manager of this muddy thing. And he comes up and he opens the door and he said, what do you want? Well, oh, Mr. Durand, I, I've just come to see about the job. What about the job? I said, well, I was going to ask, uh, you know, what's involved, what's pay and all that sort of thing. Do you want the job? Oh, don't you want the job? <laughs> yes, sir, I want the job. Get. <laughs> so, so back I go and I got the job and of course we had to go, in those days we were flying the, um, of course the DC-3s and things, but we were flying the old 10A Electra, nice. you know, the little one, yeah. yeah. And um, and of course that was all Morse code, diddly did harder, you know. And we had to use, we had to do 20 years, 20 words plain and 16 words code. And I was there for eight living weeks trying to get this thing. And, oh, goodness me, that was terrible. I'd go, I'd come home every weekend because we had a 90-day pass on the on the old limited train. You see, yeah. so, that was about it. And, and did uh, you actually have to use code in the airline? What? Well, you, you said you had to. Have sixteen words code. Yeah. You had to use code in the air. Yeah, they, they, well, of course they'd have code, you know, in, in those days. Why? Well, they had all that Q code thing, you know, QSA. I'm about to land on the water. Everything was sort of made, you know, instead of having to send all that sort of stuff, you just said QSA. And, oh, so well, it's like an abbreviation. Yes, yeah, oh, just an abbreviation yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Yes, I got you. So, but it was all in code, but it, it was difficult. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we got through that and we joined as co-pilots and uh, on the old uh, Electra. Yeah. And it was quite funny, you had a big trailing aerial you used to, to hang out there and you had to pull that bloody thing in before you landed. There <laughs> 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 was trouble if you didn't, but I didn't get any trouble with that. But we were paid four pounds a week. That's all they gave us. Four pounds a week. You know, and God knows. But my wife, she was a real brick. I love my English wife. She was a champion. And I needed someone like that. She said to me one day, what are these houses they're building all around it? I said, they call them state houses. I said, she said, can we get one? Well, I don't know who gets them, I said. I said, there's a place called the State Advances in town. Why don't you go and see them? You know, because I had to go to work every day. So she, uh, she grows up the three kids 
and took them all in the state of ours and put them all along the counter. And she said, oh, wait a minute, before she did that, she went over where they were building one in Sandringham. And she said to the guy, can you give us the number of this house? So he got a bit of 4 by 2 there and he put the number on the, a bit of 4 by 2 about this big. She put that on, she put it on the counter. She said, we'd like this house. <laughs> Of course, uh, when I told my father, he laughed like mad. He said, you know, you know, you won't get that house, but we got that house. Wow. Yeah, we got that house, that two-story house in Sandringham. Because I never liked Sandringham anyway, and I said, you know, time went by and we were in there a couple of years, I suppose, and I saw in the paper one day that, you know, you could change them if someone was living in, and then someone was living in Birkenhead. So we swapped it to the one in Birkenhead. So was, this was neither here nor there. So I did um, 25 years in National Airways. I think I did around about 18,000 hours in total flying. So I finished up on the Boeing, the little Boeing. And uh, when I was over, I was 50. I had to give them five years, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to fly the Boeing. Uh, I liked the Boeing. The Boeing's a nice little airplane, but the, like, the airplane I liked was the Viscount. The Viscount was a lovely airplane. Now the Viscount was designed by the guy that that made the the Vickers Wellington, right. you know. But he also made the 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 DC the, the VC10, and that was a fantastic airplane. But the Viscount was lovely, I and mean, you come into Wellington there. And for heaven's sake, it's blowing 80 knots outside, and the Viscount sits down beautifully. Not like that Dutch butterbox called the Friendship. Now, that was a high wing, you see. No cushioning effect in the high wing. And the old Friendship used to be all over the bloody place. Boom! It's on the ground. Now, the Viscount sits down beautifully for you. I love that airplane. I really enjoyed that. And I say that it was the nicest airplane I ever flew. Yeah. So, that's, that's my story. Oh, fantastic. Um, can I take you back to Spilsby? Yeah. Now, you are saying it was a brand new base. Um, was it all that sort of tin huts you were living in and that sort of oh, thing? Oh, yeah, they were all, you know, corrugated tin hut things here with a, with a big uh, stove in the middle sort of thing, you know. Yeah. Even the officers, you know, all that sort of thing. But at least you got sheets as officers, you know, and the officers' mess. Actually, the mess was quite good there. You know, it depended on the, um, you know, on the, on, the, on the fellow who ran the thing. But uh, of course, in the middle of the country, there we we did pretty well there. But it was cold. God, it was cold. Norfolk is cold place. Yes. Gets the wind off the steps in the Russian, you know. Yeah. No. Oh, the lank. The lank. Yeah. Well. I suppose the Lank was all right. It was a heavy aircraft to fly. The islands were heavy, you know. You really had to work on it. And of course, someone bright spark. We had so many. I really think that by the time D-Day came, if it hadn't been D-Day, Butch Harris would have had to say enough, because we were having, you know, like 100 on Nuremberg, 85 on Berlin. They couldn't couldn't bear those losses when they get over around about nine ten percent of the force. You know, my last our last trip on uh, on uh, where was that Brunswick? 
Now, five group, <coughs> I was in five group. Five group, they used to call the Independent Air Force because it was run by Ralph Cochran's, the Honourable Ralph Cochran. He was a nice guy too. Well, there he was, the Honourable. He really was. I had to go up and have lunch with him because he finished up as um, AOC Transport Command. And, uh, and I made a, a comment about um, Butterworth down in, um, oh, where the hell that Butterworth was, in Penang, near Penang there. It was too short for the blooming York. And we took off from there down there on a hot day and it went from one end to the other. And if the ground hadn't, at the end, runway finished and there was a bit of a slope up like that, I'm sure, if we hadn't got bounced into the air, we'd have crashed that airplane, you know. And I said, it's not good enough. We were full of generals down the back. You know, it only carried 12 passengers, the York. But, oh, yeah, it's a big aircraft. It was, it was bigger than the Lancaster, you know, but the same type of thing four Merlins, and uh, there was a big sort of fuselage on it. But anyway, it's not, it was quite nice to fly. Anyway, um, so anyway, I made a comment that, that we'd have to give that away. They only did that so they could carry more freight in it, you know. Of course, we were going from Singapore to Ceylon, and um, so I suppose, I don't know. Anyway, where are I'm coming all messed up now. We're talking about Spilsby. Mm. Yep. Uh, yeah, well, what I was talking about now. Five groups started to mark their own targets. They, they said to old DC old Bennett, who ran Pathfinder Force, we don't want your Pathfinders, we mark our own targets. Those two had a, a real old war going between them. Anyway, so. Cheshire, Wing Commander Cheshire was marking the target in the Mosquito and he was down to a thousand feet there and there were 200 money Lancasters all circling around in a big circle like this, 20,000 feet or thereabouts, waiting to get permission to bomb and it, and it took him a quarter of an hour or 20 minutes to find the target. Anyway, over the RT having the permission to bomb the Red Spot Fire and we could see the Red Spot Fire there. Well, of course, you know what happened. Everybody comes whoop like that. And I'm standing there, I was flying on the bombing run, you know, left, left, right, right, steady, steady from the bomb over. And I'm not even looking out the front, but the engineer's looking out the front, and the, and the navigator's looking out the front. Because <coughs> he was in the, in the astrodome, you see. And all of a sudden the engineer says, dive, 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 and I don't know how to toss, I go whoop like that. And this link came over the top like that. And the wingtip caught our trailing aerial, our aerial that ran from the fin to the egg, it just took that with it. He was that close. And the navigator must have seen that wing about that far away from him come over there, you know, because he could see like that at night. And the navigator lost his nerve. Now it was his last trip. That was our last trip, the three of us. And he lost his nerve. And I said to him, come on, mate, come on, come on. He didn't answer me. I said to him, said to him, I said, well, go back and see if you can talk some sense into him. He must finish the log and tell us where we're going. But he didn't, he wouldn't do anything. He just sat in his chair and he's got a glazed look on his face and he's just, this is just gone. He just had enough. So, 
well, we couldn't do anything for him. The wireless operator got us home on bearings, you see, and we, we, had, we didn't have much trouble, really, except that we trailed all over the defender areas that we should have been able to miss, you see. But anyway, of course, when he got on the ground, I had to say that uh, he had, didn't help us on the way home, so he was judged LMF, lack of moral fibre. Now, that's a shocking thing. He'd done 29 trips. But I couldn't do anything for him. I don't know what happened to Mac. He was a nice guy too. He wasn't the sort of guy that went out with the crew. He never never came out to go on the booze like we all did. I don't know why, but I think he was married and I think he had a family. And I didn't know him and I didn't even know his first name or his number, so I couldn't help him after the war or to find out what happened to him. Because I joined the um, the squadron, you know, 207 squadron we had. I went to New England a couple of times. To, um, so that, that was a really bad thing. And, uh, that was another time, that was another time when I think we were, <laughs> the old reaper was standing on his shoulder there with his side. <laughs> anyway, is that enough? <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> it sounds like you had nine lives and you used most of them. Yeah, I did have nine lives too. Which oh, it, it was a hard time, really. It was a hard time. Which of all of those incidents where you nearly lost it um, was the scariest for you? Which one? What? Would it have been the motorcycle crash or was it any of the air? air no, well, motorcycle crash was the one that stop me from going to 75 Squadron. I think I'd, I wouldn't be here if I talked to you with 75 Squadron because they had, they had all ex-New Zealanders in the top brass, to, you know, the Winko was a New Zealander and probably even the group captain could be a New Zealander and some of those New Zealand officers got a bit beyond themselves, you know. You know I don't know why they did. But, um, no, and I think they were always ready to go, you know, they were always ready to beat the RAF. New Zealanders couldn't do anything sort of thing. You know what they like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like we are that cricket. <laughs> yeah. yeah, anyway. So when, when you were at Spilsby, were you still there when 75 Squadron moved in, or did they...? No, they weren't They weren't with us. They were in three groups. They were down in Suffolk. Because near the end of the war, they moved to Spilsby. Oh, they'd be probably 300 miles from where we were. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, but I remember taking my Boston down there and and uh, catching up with my fellow who used to fly with me at, at the Harkia. And he looked at the Boston and he said, I'd love to fly that airplane. And I said, I bet you would. Um, I said, I can't even take you for a ride, there's nowhere, in to, nowhere to put you. <laughs> there wasn't anywhere to put him. He wouldn't, couldn't even sit on my lap. <laughs> yeah. Those low-level Boston ops that you did? Oh, the Boston was a, was a, a, a tricycle. Yes. A tricycle undercarriage, you know. That's, and I got into trouble with that, of course. That was a, that was a raid we were doing. Uh, we were doing a circus. 
circus means that we had six aircraft and we'd have a fighter escort over, over France, all this is in daylight. We were going to Saint-Omer. Now Saint-Omer was the head of the bloody Luftwaffe in northern France there. I don't know what the hell we were going to do over there with six Bostons. But the six Bostons wouldn't be low level, they'd be up at 10,000 feet with a horde of blooming spitfires all around them, you know. Anyway, um, so uh, I came out there and I was going to fly number two to the CO who was leading the squadron. And and we all lined up on the runway, all of a sudden my radio failed. My, and of course without radio you can't hear anything, you, say, and you don't know what's going on. So I said, I couldn't say anything because it wasn't going. I just left the squad and I went back and, and of course they've swapped a radio over and put a new one in and away else go. I wouldn't mind more than a quarter of an hour. And they were all sitting there with the, with the motors all going like this. And it's very short range for Boston, yeah. And I thought it was there were runways on this field, and, and and I took a shortcut across like that, across the grass. It was summer for goodness' sake, and I taxied across like that. And they must have dug a trench where the limb to put the lighting around the perimeter track, you know, trim lighting as they called it. And the nose wheel passed into that and st stuck in the in the lighting and it snapped off like a carrot and the Boston sat on his nose and the Boston's props were all bent round like this and it was the CEO's airplane <laughs> and he wasn't amused either <laughs> so there was another red endorsement in my logbook you know you can hardly say that was my fault but they don't they don't listen no Axing, axing. that's it yeah <laughs> <laughs> we were going to Stuttgart and um, we come to the, you know, the time when we should be over the target and there's nothing there, no, no, no pathfinders have put anything down or anything and we think this is funny and we're all carrying on, we've carried on for a bit longer, all of a sudden the rear gunner says, there's a bit of a glow on the sky at the, at the back, he said, probably about 50 miles away. Well, I said, we could have overshot it. I said to Mac, the navigator, maybe we've overshot the target. Well, he said, I, I really am, am, you know, I've had a hard time with navigating today because the weather was awful. And uh, so he said, uh, well, we better go back and have a look. So we shot back there. And of course, when we got over Stuttgart, it was well alight because the bombers had all gone home. Yeah. And I'm, I'm flying there on the, on, the, uh, on the bombing run, you see, we just thought, oh, well, we'll drop the bombs over the town somewhere. And uh, I'm going, and the, engine, the bomb aimer is shouting out, left, 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 right, right, steady, steady. And all of a sudden I look out the windscreen, and there in front of me is a, is a 109. And he's coming straight at us. And I thought, oh my God. I said, fighter, 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 straight ahead. Bomb aimer, bomb aimer rushed out from, from bombing, you see, and he got up into the into his, he had a couple of guns in front there. So he rushed up into the guns. I said, leave him alone. Leave him alone. Don't touch him. <laughs> he mightn't have seen us. <laughs> He's got four cannon. <laughs> so anyway, this point came straight at us. And he didn't fire a shot. I think maybe he he was one of the what they used to call the tame boar. 
fighters. He was just on, you know, proper day fighters put into the night ga night game. They, they, and he didn't fire a shot, and he didn't have taken any notice of us at all. He just went straight past. And I left him there at all. And I thought to myself, God knows what had happened if we turned around and he was full of ammunition. He'd have knocked us over, I'm sure, because we were on our own. And of course, all the flak was all around us because we were a single aircraft, you see, although we were 20,000 feet. So we actually got up, I, I coaxed the old Lancaster up to 29,000 feet on that trip. And we, we went from Stuttgart, and it was a long way into Germany, and came all the way home. And, uh, and I thought, ah, nothing to it, you see. They won't touch us at 29,000 feet. I put the autopilot in on the link, and we were sitting there, you know, we were all keyed up, but we were still sitting there, and all of a sudden, there was the bracket of, must have been their big heavy guns they had. They had the big guns that used to go up over 30,000 feet, and they, they burst all around us and fell the bloody lank full of holes. <laughs> that shook us up, I can tell you. But there again, no, yeah, so there, there was nothing much happened there. Schweinfurt, Augsburg, yeah, big towns, they were terrible thing war, really. You know what we were doing to these places. BMW works at Clement Forand. We went there, and that's where I saw the big fellow drop the first time, the 12,000-pounder. Some of the aircraft were carrying those, and we had to get well up out of the road for those, I can tell you. Stuttgart again, Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Berlin again. We landed at Dunkersville that night. Now, Dunkersville was down in the south of England, and we were pretty near out of fuel. You know, we'd been diverted all over the place because our field was just about turned. And I, um, I said, I called up this airfield. We flew over it, and, and they said they didn't, they don't say who they are. I said, can we land at your airfield because it was a an American voice that answered, and I thought, oh, we've got a Yank place where they have plenty of food and all that sort of jazz. So we landed there, and it was a Canadian girl on the RF. <laughs> and we were still an RAF station. <laughs> See, uh, Essen there, 94 aircraft missing, but actually there were 100 missing that night. Yeah. You know, what have I got in the total flying? I've got 600 hours there. Yeah. But, you know, the weather we, we flew and through, and, and a lot of those guys would be starting off to fly over Germany at night on instruments, all CBs and all sorts of things with 200 hours or 250 hours total flying, you know. Now, when I went on to fly civil here, I did six months as a co-pilot, you know, flying as a co-pilot before they let me go as a captain. Yeah, yeah. And I thought to myself, heavens no. Toulouse, we landed in we, we used to land all over the places. Sometimes we'd land at a, a FIDO aircraft, you know what FIDO is? That's the um, flight yeah, that's, the yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's an experience, I can tell you. FIDO, marshalling yards, ship. Oh, these two, UVC, Marsling Yards and La, La Chapelle, 
these were helping the the first name, you know, D Day. They were in the middle of um, right in the middle of Paris, and we never got a bomb outside that. They were they were really good raids, and they, we had a con congratulations from old Harris about that. It's because we weren't and there's that last trip on Brunswick. So there we are, my friend. So I've done a total of 710 there. And here we are, above Arabs again. <laughs> so then, of course, I'm just a wimpy instructor, but there we are. Yeah. So 207 Squadron, was it, um, was it a good squadron to be on? Oh yeah, I don't, I liked it really. Yeah, they were a good, they were a good bunch there, really. You know, I mean the sea hated the CO hated having to castigate the navigator like that. You know, it really. He told me afterwards that he said it's the most awful thing I've ever had to do because it's so wrong. You know, just wrong. A man, a man's only got. So much before he before he breaks, yeah. No, I, I look back on it and uh, I don't think I was ever terrified, really. No, no, not really. You can't afford to be. I mean, you're the captain. They look to you, and you're only a young kid, really. I mean, I was 24, admittedly, but young for my age, really. And uh, so. You're the bloke that they looked to, and uh, it, just, it was a lot to uh, to ask of a lot of fellas, I thought. Yes. And I chose just what they were like, and I think the Kiwis were pretty good, really. We all we weren't like the Aussies. The Aussies were as good as we were, but they 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 always let you know about it how bloody good they were. <laughs> Just like they were in that cricket match the other day. Yeah. <laughs> Turn this thing off. <laughs> that was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.